This Week at Hope Point. There were many smart professors in Jesus' day, but they missed him because their goal was knowledge and not a relationship with Christ. And he told them that. We study the scriptures, John 5, diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. So do you think life's in knowledge? Not. These are the very scriptures that point to me, a person. So if you come for a church to church for you know information, you'll never see Jesus. You gotta come because you say, I need a relationship with God. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's holy word. Lisa and I have an interesting way of asking each other where we are when we're, when we're separated, and that is, where's your car? Well, we don't ever ask, where, where, where's your car? Is it coming back? Is it still there? Well, the Bible has a way of finding out where you are by asking, where's your mind? What are you doing with your mind? Now, the Bible says that if you will keep your mind wherever God is and focused on Him, your life will be filled with the two things that you crave in life, and that is true happiness and true hope. This is the way Isaiah the prophet said it. You, 26, 14, you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. When you think about God as creator, Throughout the day, you marvel in awe that he did all of this by the power of his voice. When you think about God as sustainer, that all the nuts and bolts that make factories and education and systems work, you'll praise God. He's met the needs of your life again today. And then when you think of God as holy and merciful, you'll praise him that he's tender toward all of us who've blown it and not obeyed his commands. So the very things you want, the emotions you want to feel in your heart, uh, and I want to feel them, those come as a result of having a great vision of God in your mind. The more you keep God at your mind, the more your heart will be filled with the thoughts of happiness and, and hope. Now, this little series on the mind and us protecting it and how to help it Think more about God as a sort of a little mini-series within a broader series. We were on spiritual warfare of things that were coming against us to discourage us. So we've taken this sort of this, what's going to be a three-week break from that big series to talk about the mind. Because we started last week looking at verse 17, Ephesians 6, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God so in our spiritual warfare, we saw two pieces of armor, two weapons, uh, helmet and the sword, which is the Bible. So God wants us to protect our minds through the, the helmet of truth, and the place we get that truth is through the Bible, which is referred to as the sword of salvation. You really should picture your, your mind as having a full-time security guard around it protecting it from smut and, and lies and junk and then filling all the empty parking spaces in the garage with thoughts of God. That that's the only way you're going to have a life of, of peace. You say, well, didn't you sort of say that last week? Well, yes, I said that for 30 minutes, but now 
I believe I hardly made a dent in your thinking since you've, whatever you think about, you've made a lifetime habit of thinking in that direction. So why, 30 minutes is hardly going to do anything. In fact, I could ask you, how did your thinking go this week after last week's message? And you probably struggled as I did. So here is round two. Here's why our mind needs so much protecting because of the flaming arrows in the verse 16, the flaming arrows of the evil one that are constantly coming to disrupt our thinking. Get your thinking disrupted and everything else is wrong. There's four ways I think evil can disrupt our thinking. Number one is through doubt. As you just walk around doubting that God loves you. You might come in here and say he loves him or her who doesn't love me. Or he could disrupt our thinking by distraction and that is you just spend your life with all sorts of details that you never get through. I can hear John Ortberg asking you, who told you to sign up for everything? So you just stay distracted while you're not thinking about God. Deception, you just read crazy people on social media. You talk to crazy people in your life and you allow them to replace truth with error so that you actually end up constructing a new version of God instead of the picture of God that's in, in the Bible. And finally, through depravity, that is, you have gotten into a habit of your mind, uh, you've dedicated some time and in, in space in your mind to thinking about dark thoughts. In fact, there would be a day in your life, maybe years ago, where you said, I would never dwell on that. And now it's just, your, your mind seems to pant after that and... I would just beg you, especially for those students who are so young, protect your mind. It's very difficult to undo those thoughts that you did, you put in there when you were young. So now I'd like to ask a few questions. Why devote your mind to God? Number one, because God has made you to be a thinking person. That's sort of how he deals with you. That's the tool that he's given you to function is to think God's made you to think. He's made you to think about hard things. I never apologize for teaching deep because that's of God. He's given you the capacity to have rational thought. It's pretty interesting when you look at the Garden of Eden and one of the first things that God told Adam to do is name all the animals. That's like 100,000 things. And yet Adam was able to do that quite easily because of the capacity of his mind. I mean, I could think of us getting that excitement and say, well, uh, that's the big gray thing with giant ears. And that's like about all I could do. And, and, uh, there, and, and Adam named it elephant. Uh, seems to be a good name for that. Looks like an elephant. I, had a, I used to serve with a staff member that just never knew anybody's names at church. And he described all of them by the, the, the appearance of their body and their behaviors. He would say, well, that's the, the short guy with hair coming out of his shirt that runs an electrical business. He never knew anybody's business. He just described people. So Adam didn't describe. He named thousands and tens of thousands of animals. We have the ability to think that we should use it. When Jesus preached his most famous sermon, we call that the Sermon on the Mount, he met with a group of people on a hillside and 
They were very poor, and he knew they could be tempted to worry their life away. And he told them the primary reason in their life they were struggling. He said, you have little faith. Then he told them that the, the antidote for faith is to think more about God. It's interesting what he pointed to, but he said, Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? So Jesus said, your problem with your little faith is you're not thinking enough about birds. That if you look at how God has painted all the birds and made them to fly and he gives them worms and teaches them how to build nests, if God goes to all that extreme and they are not going to live forever, you have in your mind the ability to rationalize and to make the leap, God cares for me far more than he cares for birds. So he told them, your faith is small because you're not thinking about God enough, what he's done in the in the world. Number two, God reveals himself through those who devote their minds to thinking about him. So if you think about God, it's a guarantee that he will reveal himself to you because he wants to be known. He's not a hiding God. He's, he, he, he's a revealing God. You see this easily in nature. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, and night after night, they reveal knowledge. So we have a great deal of knowledge about God just because of the, how massive the universe is. God created the world a lot more beautiful than it has to be. Could have done it black and white instead of color, but he did it extravagantly that you might get a taste of his goodness, his generosity, and his beauty. Now, Psalm 19 has a friend in the New Testament that talks about how God can be known in creation and how much man rejects that, which is clear from creation. Psalm 1, uh, Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress, put down the knowledge, put down knowledge, try to hide it. They do that by their wickedness. They cover up knowledge with wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. You know, in the past 50 years, science has come a long way to the point that there are really no serious scientists anymore that do not believe in intelligent design. They don't all believe that the God of the Bible is the creator, but they know that as they are learning more about what's called the fine tuning of the universe, like all the things that might have had to happen for, you know, for earth to exist or life to exist on earth and, and just finely tuned. And this has only been recent developments. So they all conclude the probability that someone that there is no one controlling life and all the variables that make life possible by the, the way that uh, the planets are arranged. The probability that happened by itself is one times 10 to the 24th, or that would be a one with 24 zeros. 
which with anybody that has a grain of intelligence, mathematically would know that's basically saying that's impossible. It could not happen apart from a designer. Ultimately, you cannot help an atheist believe that God exists. Because he already knows that God exists because that's the first thing that God told him. God has made his existence known to every body through creation and conscience. So what the atheist must do every day is to try to develop a new argument to deny what is right in front of him. And then one day if he feels like he won the argument... But then the next day, something happens in his life where he sees beauty or receives generosity, and it feels for a moment as if God has been good to him. He has to go back into the courtroom and develop a new argument to say that God does not exist. And his whole life is a courtroom argument of trying to prove that God does not exist. As Alastair Begg says, um, atheism is a choice we know but we choose not to know. Number three, God reveals himself most fully to those who devote their minds to Scripture. Because you might have gotten the impression, as I was saying a moment ago, that when you look at the creation and you, you have these pings in your conscience, you say, that's enough, I can fully know God. Not, not at all. You, you need the scripture to, to know the true picture of God, and that's why he gave us the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and, and training in, in righteousness. I mean, I just, I just look at the, the word teaching alone, and I might say more about that next week. It's really what distinguishes us from pagan religions is our devotion to teaching. Uh, we're not into ceremonies and all that. We're into, into teaching. But the Bible teaches us who God is. The, the, the purpose of reading the Bible is not necessarily to, to read it and to say, I, I, you know, that God is love. It, the Bible does teach that, and I'm grateful for that beyond words. But the purpose for reading the Bible is it teaches us that God is God. There is, there's, there's so much more to God than just Him being loving. So we go to the Bible and say, God, you teach me who you are, not who I want you to be. Because if I just say I just want God to be loving and nothing else, you might conclude that, but not after reading not after reading the Bible, you know that God is, has many attributes. It's interesting how God communicated who He is to us in the Bible. Second Peter 1 says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible that you have in your hands or in your home was written uh, by 40 men as God through the Holy Spirit spoke to those men and told them what God wants the world to know about him and the Holy Spirit perfectly communicated to them. I like how Alistair Begg says it. What God says 
is what the Bible says, and what the Bible says is what God says. You say, well, that's just, that's cute, cute little quote, but it's too simple for me. Well, there's all sorts of books out there in the realm of apologetics that you can read if you want about be, helping you believe more and more that the Bible is, is trustworthy. But what I, I really want to tell you that ultimately there are no man-made arguments that will persuade you that the Bible is the Word of God. The proof that the Bible is God's voice will ultimately be the Bible itself. This is what Jesus said in John 17. Uh, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether or not I speak on my own. So the more that you read the Bible, the more you will see how complex and yet how intertwined it is and how powerful and how beautiful it is. This happened to me at college. I meant to bring to you my little college uh, New Testament that I bought. You've heard me tell that story. But as I read it, I, I didn't say this statement that I'm about to quote to you. I could have. I wish I had. But I love what this man said coming from a pagan world the first time he read the Bible. Whoever made my heart wrote that book. That's what you'll discover as you start reading the Bible. That's, that's what the Bible speaks about, why, it's, why it has that effect on you. Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the Word of God is active and alive. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God knows our hearts, and through the Bible, God speaks to the deepest parts of our heart. You know, and what I, what I love about this, the Bible being active, is alive and active, is like when you read the Bible, you're reading the only book that you probably have in possession of that the author sits down with you when you read it. It's what the Bible means when it's, it's, it's alive. The living God sits with you when you read it, and then he deals with you whatever you need to hear from him, which is a lot of things. Somebody might ask, well, you know, there's a lot of different versions of the Bible, translations of the Bible. There's a lot of different church denominations. They have a lot of different interpretations of the Bible. Why didn't God just shout the answer from heaven instead of do it through a book? Well, I mean, to begin with, God is infinitely brilliant. You wouldn't understand a word he said. Secondly, he's infinitely powerful. The Bible describes his voice as 10,000 thunders. It would intimidate you. So instead, what theologians call God made an accommodation. I think some of you teachers might use that word. I don't know if it's in the same context, but he came to us where we are. Therefore, if we're human, we are. He speaks to us through other humans, whether that be the writing of the Bible or the teaching of the Bible. It's accommodation. It's sweet. It's kind. It's loving. 
When I spend time with my grandson, Wells, I speak on his level. Don't, whatever words I think he's knowing and saying, I repeat those. And whatever words I think I'd like him to grow in, I, I read those. But I accommodate my time with him to what he can understand. That's why the Bible is a book and not something God has given as a shout from heaven. Ultimately, God wanted us to so perfectly understand that he did something in addition to just the writings of the Bible. He spoke to us through the lips of his own son. God gave all the commandments, the Ten Commandments, through Moses, a man, and he spoke through 16 prophets, Isaiah, Malachi, but in order that we would perfectly know the mind and heart of God, he spoke to us through Jesus. Hebrews 1 says it like this, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times in many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his, by his son. It's one of the reasons that Jesus came is it so he would be a perfect representation of the truth of God. So listen, so when you add all those up, God has spoken to you through creation, conscience, and Jesus, and the Bible, then no one is legitimately confused about who God is. I think the issue is we dislike who God is. We resent his authority over our lives and his interference with our plans. Personally, I've never sinned in my life because I was confused about what God wanted. I sinned because I did not want to submit my will to what his will wanted at that time. Number four. God reveals the way of salvation to those who devote their minds to Scripture. I told you last week that we live in a, not just an anti-authority age, but an anti-intellectualism age. People want to say, I, I can know God just by thinking about God. I, already, I can know Him in my heart. The reason that doesn't work is Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is is, is more deceitful than anything else on earth. You know, the culture says, trust your heart. What do you want to do? Trust your heart. The Bible screams at you, please don't trust your heart. It's not reliable to tell you what is true and what God wants. So the Bible has, so God has given us the Bible in order to inform our heart through our minds, so we'll be able to make right decisions with a transformed heart. Jesus Christ met a woman at a well in John chapter 4. She'd, she'd gone to the village well to get water. It was midday. Jesus changed his plans to be there because he wanted to introduce her to eternal life so that she could become a daughter of God. But the first thing that he had to clear up was her wrong thinking about God because it was going to keep her out of heaven. So she was um, involved with, had been involved with many men in her life, 
I'd already gone through five significant relationships, looking to fill her life with, uh, with men and sinful pleasure, and was now on, on guy number six. And yet she considered herself a worshiper of God as much as anybody. Like, hey, I'll worship God my way. So Jesus, this is what she said. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. So she's going back and saying, well, this is, this is how I was raised. This is how we worship. And Jesus told her, you are not a worshiper because you're not believing the right things about God. John 4, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. You're not even worshiping God. Yet a time has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So there, in, within two words, Jesus said what worship is composed of. Spirit would be, you know, would sort of be a, um, a reminder of what takes place Okay, Richard, just stop and see. So the Spirit would be a reference to what takes place in our heart when the Holy Spirit brings a, a white, hot flame of devotion in the furnace of our, of our heart. And he does that by igniting truth that we have put in our mind that's making its way down to our, our heart. So the Holy Spirit doesn't have anything to ignite if the wrong things are in our head. So truth is what the Holy Spirit uses to create affection in our heart for Jesus. You know, it's like you can't have a relationship with me if you believe the wrong things about me. You can't. If you, if we talking or whatever, you say, Richard is a lazy teacher, is unprepared, and is unkind. That's not me. It's not true. And I will not hang around you. I have no interest in being with you. You're saying false things about me. There's no place for us to go if you persist in believing those things about me. So I move on. God moves on with people that persist in saying wrong things about, about him. The Apostle Paul said that was the problem with his fellow countrymen. They believed the wrong things about God. Romans 10, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on what? Truth. Since they did not know the right, they didn't know it. The righteousness of God, they sought to make their own God. They sought to make their own Savior. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is who they should have submitted to. He's the culmination of the law. The law was pointing to him, yelling to look at him, so that there may be righteousness for, for everyone who believes in Jesus. We love this verse. We didn't look exactly at this verse last week, but we did say last week that this represents as nothing more in the Bible, the love of God, the measureless grace of God, that you're, you can be filled with the righteousness of God by placing faith in Christ. 
How kind of God to do that. So that you don't have to save yourself by obeying all of the rules and the laws. The ultimate thing that, dis- that condemns people is not this sin or that sin, but they refuse to believe that God saves through Christ. And Paul's fellow countrymen would not believe that. So this points to the glorious love of God. He's made a way where there was no other way for us to get to heaven. The second thing that points to the glorious love of God is he's given us a book that tells us about that way. 1 John 5, 12, These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So, without that, without a book, we'll create our own idol. We'll manufacture God in our image. So the greatest thing, the greatest way that God has ever done is to love us is by sending Jesus. The second greatest thing that God has ever done to show his love is to give us a Bible so that we'll not miss Jesus. So that we'll know that Jesus is the highest good. Serving him is the highest purpose. Following him yields the highest satisfaction. And to cling to him will take us to the highest heaven. That's why he's given us the Bible, to know these things. Number five, God reveals his strength to those who fill their mind with his truth. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and goodness, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to add to goodness what? More knowledge. So Peter is saying, you want power? Do you see how that's related? Do you want power? It comes through knowledge about the greatness of God. Everybody wants power over or power to face. That power comes through an increased knowledge of Christ. I just have to do this. I just want you to see how Paul prayed. When Paul was in prison, how he prayed for the three churches that he wrote. You're going to see he prayed for all of them. I want you to have more knowledge about God. To the church at Ephesus, he said, I pray that you will know what is the hope to which he's called you, his glorious inheritance, and the greatness of his power. I want you to know that. When he wrote the church at Philippi, he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge so that you may approve what is excellent and may be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. That's why he wants you to know it so it'll affect your life. And he wrote the church at Colossae, I pray that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will so you won't waste your life to lead a worthy to a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So all I can say is to this anti-intellectual age, 
since God has gone to such great lengths to give us a Bible. I don't know of anything that could be more disrespectful and really actually rebellious than to not use the very tool of our mind to know him. It is the way that he's designed to increase the love of Christ is through our, our minds. So let me say two things about that before we go so that you'll not think I'm going in a, a wrong direction with knowledge. Number one, Knowledge can help only when it's applied. That's why Peter did his little combo at the end of that verse 5. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and goodness to knowledge. Do you know what he means by that? He said, okay, this is kind of how this is going. He said, okay, you got this knowledge. And having knowledge of how great Jesus is, you that calls you to put your faith in him. But the kind of faith that's real faith, when you place your faith in really in Christ, it leads to you doing good things. So he said, make every effort that when you got this faith thing going, make sure that faith, that white hot flame in your heart is leading your body to do good things. And to make sure that happens, you add more knowledge so you'll believe more in Christ and do more good things with your life. So knowledge is never the end goal. It is for some people. We, we, we call them prideful. It's not pretty what they do with their life, just accumulate knowledge and say, I know more than you do. But we use knowledge for the highest good of doing good things, of loving Christ. Every piece of knowledge you ever receive about the Lord comes with a sacred and solemn responsibility for it to be applied immediately to your life. The purpose of all knowledge is to increase your affection for God. And if that's not occurring, then let me tell you what your knowledge is doing. Your knowledge is actually hurting your heart. That is sort of, you'd say the downside of knowledge is when it's not applied, when knowledge is not applied, it has the ability to cause your heart to grow cold as you get used to ignoring knowledge, insensitive as you have found a way to suppress knowledge and your life will become unresponsive as you find a way to not respect knowledge. Number two thing I want to say about knowledge is knowledge leads to life only when your goal is to see Jesus. There were many smart professors in Jesus' day, but they missed him because their goal was knowledge and not a relationship with Christ. And he told them that. You study the scriptures, John 5, diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. So you think life's in knowledge. It's not. These are the very scriptures that point to me, a person. So if you come for a church to church for you know, information, you'll never see Jesus. You've got to come because you say, I need a relationship with God Nothing proves that out as does the story of Rosaria 
Butterfield and her conversion, and I will give you a brief account of it, but I wish you would read it. She is a pastor's wife, a former professor of English at Syracuse University, 10 years tenured. She also taught professor of women's studies there. Now, when she taught at Syracuse, she was not just a professor, but uh, a lesbian feminist activist prof. And somewhere along uh, year eight, she met a pastor uh, named Ken and his wife, Floey. Uh, they happened to be her neighbors. It's interesting how they met. Uh, the Promise Keepers group had come to town in 1997 to Syracuse. And Promise Keepers uh, it was a group of Christian, it was a movement for Christian men. They'd gather, scream, high five, sing and worship and encourage each other to be men of character. It was a cool thing. But she didn't like it because she thought it was, well, it was just, she thought it was exalting men and she didn't know what she thought. She just hated it. So she wrote a book to New York newspaper, wrote, wrote a paper to the New York newspaper and the title of it is uh, Promise Keepers is a Danger to Democracy. And uh, it got a lot of traffic and a lot of people wrote good and bad comments. But there was a guy, a pastor named Ken Smith, who said, I'd like to talk to you about that. I don't think your argument makes any sense. She said he wrote so intelligently and so kindly, she sought him out and she began meeting with Ken and Floey in their home. And she said, in my entire relationship with them, she said, I was probably with them in their home 500 times. And the deal was this. We're going to come. We're going to read the Bible. You can ask questions. We'll show you where we find that in the Bible. We'll pray, sing, and uh, we're not going to manipulate you, overpower you. You believe what you are ready, able, want to believe. And we're going to leave all the conversations every week at the cross. And next week, that's where we pick them up for another conversation. Well, <clears throat> during that time she was meeting with them, she read the Bible through seven times <clears throat> because she was doing a research paper on the religious right. Ken was one of her research objects. She said she loved, she thought the Bible was very interesting. It talked about moral law, ceremonial law, judicial law, hermeneutics, and every kind of genre there is in English. That's all it meant to her. One day, Ken, the pastor, asked her, can I give a lecture to your students on that the Bible is more than literature? She said, in my class at Syracuse, no way. You're not touching them, but I would love to hear that lecture. Would you come to my house? So she gathered some of her friends who believed as she believed, and he gave that lecture. And of what the whole purpose of the Bible is about to bring people to God and among the people that were there that night was a woman named Jill who came to Rosaria after the lecture and said, Rosaria, you are playing with fire. And I know that you're playing with fires because I used to be a Presbyterian minister named Matthew. I was married to a woman named Mary. We have two children. 
This is a very convicting book. Exactly as Hebrews 4 said earlier, the Word of God is living and active. It's filled with energy, God's energy coming after you because He loves you. So Rosaria responded to this woman, said, but what if it's true? What if he's real, Jesus? And what if he is risen? Surprisingly, Jill responded, well, I'm going to pray for you then. You'll find the truth you're seeking. The next day, Rosera opened her house door to let her dogs out, and there was a box of books, and they were from Jill from her days at seminary. She had no use for them anymore because those books were pointing to God. So she thought Rosaria might could use them. And the, among the first books that she picked up were Calvin's commentaries that we know as the Institutes of the Christian Religion, the greatest two-volume uh, systematic theology ever written. And she opened it and began reading Calvin's commentary on Romans 1 where God talks about what is appropriate sexual behavior, what is inappropriate both inappropriate homosexual behavior, inappropriate heterosexual behavior. And she saw on the margin where Jill back in seminary had written, oh, wow, this can't be true. She said it was painful to know what Jill must have gone through when she first read that. But all it calls Rosaria to ask is, after all she read is, what if it is true? She could not stop asking that. Well, the conviction got too great. So she went to Ken and Floyd, the pastor and his wife, and said, we have to stop meeting. And they wouldn't let her go. They gave her some space, but not out of her life. Ken said, well, why don't you just st start attending my church then? We don't have to meet, just... And that did it. Whatever happens in this place when Hunter and the band sing and whatever happens through the mystery of preaching happened to Rosaria. John chapter 12, or I mean, the book of John, all of the book of John, nothing about sexuality, all about Jesus. She said, he is real, he is risen, he is the Savior, and she said to him, I want you to save me. And she's one of the great forces for Christ now around the world because Jesus Christ lives clearly in her heart. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.